welcome back to another edition of The Blend Sessions. My name is Theo van den Bruecke. I'm your host for a series of conversations on culture recorded with Chivas Regal blended Scotch whisky at their bar in East London. Each week, we bring together two creative minds to talk about how collaboration and the blending of different skills have shaped their work and been the key to their success. The discussions cover art, photography, food, fashion and literature and are an inspiring, informative look at how the creative process works in these worlds. This week's conversation on culture brings together a pair of key figures in the history of British style. Photographers Paul Hallam and Ewan Spencer, two creatives who brought together the skills they had honed in the worlds of music, fashion, film and photography before finally collaborating last year as publisher and author. Hallam was the man who documented London's 1980s mods and their twin obsessions with obscure music and sharp clothes. Two decades later, Spencer did a similar job capturing the garage, grime and pirate radio scenes across London before turning publisher and working with Hallam on his book, Odds and Sods. Together, through blending their skills, the two men have successfully captured the most exciting corners of modern British life in all its variety. This is a really great one for me because I was a big fan and I'm a big fan of Ewan's work, so it was pretty enlightening and they were very entertaining, which, which also helped. So sit back and enjoy Ewan Spencer and Paul Hallam recorded live in conversation with Shivas Regal's Scotch Whiskey in episode four of The Blend Sessions. Always making pictures of something that I wanted to be a part of without me obviously knowing or understanding or realizing that. So when I saw his pictures early last year, probably a few months before that, he, um, he'd been making pictures of his scene in London and I'd been kind of hanging out around the back of CNA in Newcastle upon Tyne at 13 years old and he was actually kind of organizing or DJing at events in London and sort of, uh, he's a little bit older than I am. And uh, he was kind of like DJing and, and organizing events and he was kind of one of the faces in London and I was kind of imagining myself as part of this scene elsewhere and he was actually, he was that scene. So there's a kind of an odd sort of situation where I'd kind of stumbled across, if you like, somebody who'd made a bunch of pictures about this kind of scene that I was kind of trying to be a part of back then when I was like that 13 year old in Newcastle sort of trying to sort of identify with something or or kind of identify myself with uh, with a scene and Paul what age were you at that point okay so in 1984 when you're 13 and lurking around the back of CNAs Okay. <laughs> um, I would have been 19. So I started DJing when I was 17 in 1983. And, yeah, I, if I'm going to say I, I was the top of my game in 84, 85. That's when I was doing the clubs. If, if the internet had been invented and Facebook had been invented, I would have been DJing in Malaysia and Mexico. But I wasn't. <laughs> With Calvin Harris. I was DJing in... Um, Clacton and South End a lot, to be honest. And Hailing Island. I don't know if anyone knows where Hailing Island is, but that's Hailing Island's quite important in that um, mid-80s mod scene. We'll come on to that in a bit. So yeah, I, I started DJing because I was a young, arrogant 17-year-old, as opposed to a 51 arrogant uh, year old now. Um, I still didn't turn up on time. And I wasn't happy what the established DJs were playing, which was ridiculous, because they were real men. There was a guy called Tony Glass who sadly died um, a couple of years ago. He was 30. He had, you know, a Volvo and a sheepskin. And I had the audacity to say to him one day, Tony, I don't like the record you're playing. I think you should play more R&B. And really, he should have just gone, 
on your bike, son, you're banned for life. But the, he sat me down and he said, OK, if you think you can do better. Um, he was doing a club called The Bush Hotel, which is now the Syndicate Social in Shepherd's Bush. He was doing that on a Saturday very successfully. But for me, it wasn't moving on. Mod had come along in 79. Northern Soul had been in, uh, been discovered in about 1980, 81 in London. And it just, you know, it was the same records every week. It was the same clothes every week. It was the same sort of faces. And I just thought we need to progress. We need to have different music. And we should never play a record for more than six weeks or so. So to be fair to him, going back to the original point, uh, he said, if you think you do better, off you go. And he gave us the Bush Hotel on Sundays and we called it Sneakers. And it started off very slowly and it wasn't very good. Um, but it's kind of remembered now as the seminal club of that period. Yeah, history, history's done uh, us a favour. Was that the question? I forgot what the question yeah, was. Yeah, I mean, you're asking <laughs> questions. <laughs> what I quite like about that, and the, 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 the sort of thought behind that as well, and Paul's thought behind that as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old, is that idea of, like, modernism and what modernism was for me at that time also, then, which being a mod is, and if you st I still consider myself a mod, uh, which is peculiar for someone of my age, but the idea of just pushing things forward and moving things on, like a, a song should shouldn't be played for more than kind of like six weeks. That's it. Move on. The next thing, you know, like, so my, my ex uh, father in law, for instance, was called Phil from Welling Garden City. And he had a, a beautiful Lambretta in like 1965. And I've got these amazing pictures of him that I really cherish. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a funny, funny man. He's a peculiar man. No way. And he's, um, his whole idea was that, you know, nothing lasted more than a, a few weeks. And that was it. It was over. You moved on to the next thing. And that was, that for me is the kind of, the genesis, really, of modernism. And it's still sort of, for me, it still moves on. It still exists to this day. There was a wonderful article recently, I think in the Financial Times, I can't remember, but talking about the idea of how modernism and that kind of movement from the 1960s, the late 50s, 1960s, has kind of influenced so much in our kind of popular culture today from the way we kind of appreciate, if you like, coffee and continental culture, the Ivy League, how that kind of look now sort of permeates into kind of uh, high street they're kind of the movement of like current sort of youth movements as well. And the way they kind of generate their own kind of economies and micro economies, et cetera. It's all, I believe, part of a kind of modernist ethos. And yeah, it's, it's interesting talking to you both actually before this, there's a certain paradox because it was a revival, the thing that you were involved with. And you've talked about reappropriation and how that's kind of the, and nostalgia and that's the kind of genesis of all this. So is that modern? <sighs> It's, it's a difficult one. I mean, I remember people in 84, 85, you know, we'd do clubs. You know, we couldn't get... There were no places like this. This was a great place to have a mod club in 1984. But in Britain, there were many more people than this at our clubs, to be honest. But there wasn't. So we used to have to have upstairs rooms of pubs or downstairs basement cellar pubs. And I do remember barmaid one saying, why are you calling yourself a mod? You're living something from 20 years ago. <laughs> Which she was right, but, but we weren't because initially maybe we were just playing... There's a very, very famous book. Uh, called The Mods Book, original title, by a guy called Richard Barnes. Now, Richard Barnes, I'm really proud to say, is a friend of mine now. When I was 16, he was this legend. Richard Barnes came up with the name The Who. He went to art school with Pete Townsend, and basically he's been Pete Townsend's mate for however many years now, 55 years or whatever. And in 1979, when the revival happened, Pete Townsend said, Barney, go and write a book about mods. And we were saying this earlier, he struggled because it had only been 14 years before, but nostalgia hadn't kind of been invented in, the, in that time. It hadn't, you know, there'd, there'd been a teddy boy revival in the 70s, but not in terms of youth culture, but it was only 14 years before, 15 years before, but nobody kind of remembered it. It's like they got to 66, everyone forgot everything that happened 
beforehand. <laughs> it's true. So, you know, there, there, was, there was nothing accessible. So the only thing we had was Richard Barnes's Mods book. And, you know, I could probably at one point recite it word for word and know every photograph in there because that's all we had. You didn't have the internet telling you how to do it. And no, how to it. no. And, and records as well. I mean, somebody asked me the other day, how did we know what records to buy? <clears throat> it was very easy. Early on, you went to a club and there were older people. There might have been people who had been people at like A.D. Crowsdale had been a DJ in the Northern Soul scene in the 70s. So he knew what to do. But we just had to look at the odd article. Sometimes uh, I think The Guardian was quite good at things like that. They'd, they'd have a flashback. Or we had to look at the records in Richard Barnes's book, which is, is interesting because there's a record in there, Swinging on the Star by Big D. Irwin. And I quizzed him when I first met him. I said, why is that in the book? And he was like, oh, why do you have to bring that up? Because, you know, in 1964, we didn't know that... A bit like 1984, I didn't know I was going to be sitting here 30 years later. He goes, we just took these records to parties and got rid of the records and bought loads of, you know, Led Zeppelin albums come later or whatever. So, you know, there was no guidebook as such to, to live it by. Yeah, and you, you photograph many different i keep saying subcultures i feel like that's wrong like youth cultural movements and scenes and you're kind of doing the vogue ball thing and you've done um grime and gabon and all of this stuff um a is there kind of a unifying thread that unites them and b kind of wh where do the uniforms come from and why are they so important for me that's the motivation really to photograph it i think and sort of or go into it and sort of be a part of it if you like for that moment it's the invention of youth that is so appealing for me. So it's the idea that you start out, I mean, you, you know, majority of youth, I think, retrospectively, they've been in, I guess, in a compromised sort of situation and as, as much as, it might not be as much about class, but it's the idea that you're trying to define yourself, you're trying to look for something, you're trying to look for entertainment. And so what you end up doing, uh, it seems, is create your own entertainment. And I, I think it's the idea of that, it's the creativity and the kind of energy and anarchy that comes with that, and that way that, for example, something like Grime hit the mark immediately because it covered everything. There was social uh, linguistics involved. So there's always that idea of a patois that was excluding others, and so it, but including a certain person. So if you could understand the kind of linguistics of it, you were included. And it was to keep me out, in a way, if you like, at that time, uh, because of who I was. But um, it wasn't meant for me, and I understood that and knew that. But I guess other other sort of subcultures, and I think subculture is probably the right word for it, is um, there's a there's a there's a strain throughout all of them, and it is the idea of invention, and it's grace under pressure. It's the idea that you you haven't got a lot, but you want to make something of what you have, and out of that, it's just for me, it's pure creativity, and it's not learned. It's it's not kind of something that you can kind of go to college and sort of like distinguish it. It's something that's just about you and your friends and your kind of sexuality, your energy, your kind of uh, pursuit of that kind of ideal. Um, and that's kind of what is fun, I guess, and sort of uh, sexy. I guess you've both, you've both in your different ways and at different times documented these scenes that you've been part of. How do you deal with the kind of voyeurist aspect of it? Because, you know, you both... The, the photographs are very intimate you're very close to the action very much in it and that you're not as a photographer you're not engaged so much how does that work do you kind of snap and run i think it's you... good for paul to start this because he he yeah, was an insider yeah. it was it, 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 and he never he never describes himself as a photographer because it was it was a vernacular for you wasn't it it was your world wasn't it 
Yeah. You stopped after 1987, right? You didn't take photos. Uh, 85. 85. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, I, I, what happened was I went on a ski trip at school. I found a, my parents had an Olympus trip in the late 70s, which they got something better probably in 1981. I took this Olympus trip on holiday with me. I've still got it. I've got it in the bag, actually. Um, yeah, I'll get it out. Yeah. <laughs> And I took, I, I took some pictures on this ski trip and people went, oh, yeah, they're really good, but they weren't. So I just started work in print and I thought, I love this scene. I'm, I'm so engrossed in it. I am going to take photographs. And I kind of had an idea that maybe I'd do something better than a fanzine. I'd try and make a booklet because I was working as a, a paste-up artist or a camera opera, PMT camera operator back in those days. And that was the initial idea. And then, well, you know the story. And I, so I had the Olympus trip. I bought a better camera in 1983. I went out and bought a Zenit B. And there's not a single photograph from 1983 in any of my books or anywhere because I didn't know how to use the camera. So all the pictures, I can't get the flash speed with the, the shutter speed. So everyone's heads are missing or their legs are just missing or there's just big black bands across the middle. So I, I put that away and went back to the Olympus trip because there's only three settings on that. You can't go wrong. Um, <laughs> but it's, as for taking the photographs, by 84, I was DJing lots and yeah like I say a lot of the clubs weren't much bigger than this maybe twice the size so I'm on a deck here and you can just take the photographs and because I'm the DJ and because I'm the man that they all know and because I'm their friend nobody's stopping you and thinking you're CID or something you know You are kind of a polymath, right? You're you're doing everything. You're publishing. You're making films. You're writing. You're taking photographs. You're yeah, I'm restless. You're restless. <laughs> but do you think that's important now in terms of the creative industries, particularly or being a photographer as you are? Um, do you have to do everything? Do you have to be capable of doing everything in order to be successful? Is that it? no? I don't think you do. I mean, I think because what I do is so so kind of finite, so sort of particular that then to then sort of spread that out elsewhere makes more sense because then I guess you hit a sort of wider audience and the audience is out there, but it's not your sort of traditional photographic audience. It's an audience that's involved in kind of music, style, art, design, a myriad of kind of like interests. And then, then it kind of like spreads a lot further. And I, um, I mean, I consider myself first and foremost, unlike Paul, as a photographer. I do, I do, and that's kind of where I sort of began, but I like to think that I can kind of do a little bit more than that or kind of, or appeal to a wider audience. The kind of photographic audience for me is a bit dry and a bit sort of academic, if you like. So the idea that I can kind of like maybe talk to a lot more people is much more appealing because then it sort of draws people into it. I guess, then, Paul, talking to you about the kind of photography element, it does seem to you that the DJing side of stuff is much more important and much more integral. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't take the photographs to be sitting here years later to do it. I did it because I wanted to document the scene that I was loving. And to be honest, you know, back in those days, there's, there's no instant photography. I, I was very lucky. Um, well, I started work in 82, and to get black and white film developed was a fiver. And I was earning probably 25, 30 pounds, so it was a big chunk of the wages. A month? A week. A week, okay. A week, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was the 80s. <laughs> it's tough times. Yes. <laughs> no, <laughs> I wasn't lurking around CNA. But it was a really expensive thing to do. That was, you know, it was a fifth of my wages was going on developing films. So I couldn't go out every day and take 32 pictures. What's 32? Isn't that a roll of film? 36. 36. Good days. Um, but luckily, you know, I think about 84, I met a guy who worked in a, in a dark room in a lab and he used to produce them for me. But again, I'll take the pictures. I might take pictures. I mean, it's a long time ago, I'm trying to remember. But I might take a film, a roll of film over a month because, you know, there's, aren't, there's not that many 
club nights and also what you're going to take them off. You know, it's pretty much the same people at every club. You weren't there as a photographer. I'm there as a photographer. I've, I've, got the cat, I've got the decks there, I've got me there, I've got a whiskey and coke there, and I've got an Olympus trip occasionally. So I'll take the pictures, and they might, might not come back for two, three weeks because he's doing it in his spare time when, when he's supposed to, not supposed to be working or whatever. So... What was the question? I've gone to. I wasn't a photographer, no. I, I, I was yeah, the DJ. It was more about the DJ. But I wanted to record it. And as a result, one of the things that, since you and very kindly published the book, has been great is I think I'm documenting a youth cult, but you're also documenting part of London that's never going to happen. There's The picture that gets the most attention is one of us all standing outside of Paul Raymond's review bar. And there's Madame Jojo's, and there's, and there's a, a single yellow line, and there's no yellow lines outside there. That's part of Soho that will never be so even though i didn't know it at the time it's just a cold sunday morning in in 1985 what i'm doing is i wasn't aiming to do it what's happened is i've documented things that are now gone and that will never come back Mm. you know that part of london will never be seen again there's pictures of people walking through berwick street market at five in the morning you know, what's that going to be a massive TK Maxx? I'm getting all political here, but, um, <laughs> you know, but I'm really yes. glad I did take those photographs because, you know, you, people won't remember that ever happened. Yeah, it's very important, yeah. You and for you, I mean, I'm kind of interested because you do photograph a lot. You're not, you're not one specific kind of scene. What is no. the most interesting scene for you at the moment? What's the one that you're kind of most fascinated by and most engaged with? I mean, my current obsession is Gabba. Oh, I want to hear about Gabba. Which you mentioned amazing. earlier. Yeah. So, I mean, um, Gabba is a Dutch hardcore rave scene from the mid-90s. And, I mean, it's unlistenable. It's not my kind of music. But what I love about it is it's just that idea of invention again and just it was from such a small, tiny scene based on someone trying to sort of change the face of techno music into something that was from 120 BPM to 180 or 200 BPM. And then as a result of that, and as a result of the speed of the music and the intensity of the music, people started to dress in a certain way that was kind of like almost combative in the rave. So they'd wear just like loose sportswear and a pair of Nikes and they would shave their head. And so it just became this kind of like Dutch kind of Almost, again, like a modernist kind of scene where, you know, it was an identity. So immediately you knew this other kid was Gabba. Right. Because he's got that look. He's got the tracks with bottoms in the 90s and the kind of Australian kind of like Larry tracks with top and his head shaved and he's wearing some earrings and he's got a tattoo or whatever. And that was the identity. So I'm just kind of interested in how that sort of works now because there's a slight revival for Gabba right now if you're interested. <laughs> <There's> some, <laughs> the re- <laughs> they kind of did, the, uh, Peter Van and all those sort of guys, they're still around and they're still sort of DJing and the producing records still, but the kind of raves are becoming popular again. Oddly, they're becoming popular in kind of like Milanese um, suburbs. I mean, why? You know, but like, it's these kind of reasons, it's these kind of things that like, kind of just like keep me kind of interested, you know, like get my interest up. It's quirks. And there's an idea of like, in terms of like style now in uh, European youth, there's a a kind of style that like photographers uh, like Gosha Robinski, like kind of like a photograph and that kind of shaved head like almost like a football casual sportswear kind of guy, which is a kind of homoerotic sort of like vision in a way. But he's kind of, but these kind of Gabba kids were looking like that. So I found these kind of kids around Europe that look like kind of Gabba kids, but like to photograph them in some Gabba sort of like clothes. It's making things kind of like come together. What's the photograph you're most proud of? It's probably a very difficult question to answer. Um, and... Also, what's the best party you've ever been to? 
Okay, well, the, the photograph one I can answer very easily. I probably took a thousand pictures, and this one really stands out mainly because what I was saying, it, it's a, a picture that can't be recreated. It's just a picture of two ladies, or they were probably 18, 19 at the time. It's at the Bush Hotel in Shepherd's Bush. And it's nothing spectacular. It's, it's, it's Jane is wearing a stripy top. She's still my friend. She lives in Cornwall, and she's reading a fanzine. Now, the idea of a printed fanzine in a club, reading it in the early hours, and then there's a lady, Fiona, behind, and on the wall... It's like a, um, a chalkboard, and somebody's written "support the miners," and that again, that's not. I'm not saying it politically, but the fact that somebody had written that on the wall—that's that's dated that photograph. You know, that picture couldn't have been taken last week unless it was done ironically. So that one is my favourite picture because it just says 1984, 85. Right. My best party was actually at the draw of a hat. I was with uh, someone else actually here and we are talking about it earlier. I went to Body and Soul in I think 2000, in the summer of 2000 in New York and I'm a soul boy and I got into house music early on but then I kind of went back into soul music and then 2000 after Garage and what have you, I went to Body and Soul in New York and I was with Sleaze Nation magazine and I was with some good friends out there and it was like, I think we, we arrived at like four in the morning and left at like eight and it was four hours and I have to say, it was absolutely sublime and it was like the purest kind of like a party sort of dance just coming together of people and there was such a cross-section of people in that club at that, in that moment, in that incredible sort of summer. It was a, like a religious kind of moment. Uh, it was beautiful. It was amazing. Thanks to Ewan Spencer and Paul Hallam in conversation for the Blend Sessions with Shivas Regal Scotch Whiskey. We'll be back next week for another evening with two more of our leading cultural collaborators. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts to automatically receive each episode. You can find out more about Shivas Regal Whiskey at shivas.com. From me, Theo van den Bruecke, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.